0: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On Air. Sustainable Lens. Resilience on radio. Hear an informed, intelligent and provocative discussion of issues every week as seen through the lens of sustainability. It is brought to you by Otago Polytechnic where all students learn how to make their industries more sustainable. It is hosted by Samuel Mann and Shane Gallagher and joined every week by a leading figure in the sustainability scene. Sustainable Lens, resilience on radio. Broadcast every week on Otago Access Radio and podcast on sustainablelens.org and on oar.org.nz.
1: Welcome to Sustainable Lens Regeneration on radio. Each week we talk with somebody making a positive difference and we try to see the world through their perspective, through their sustainable lens. Tonight we are doing a dive into the archive and we're starting with the theme of consumption, of shopping. Here is Mike Salmons. So
2: this has come up within that area. Um, if, so. if
1: we could demonstrate that Product X was made by slave Labour and... Cambodia?
2: Well, hopefully we would have already sorted that out at the procurement piece. So w- when we go out to uh, tender, we, um, we speak to, uh, to all our uh, potential suppliers and they have to uh, meet certain requirements around uh, labour conditions uh, and around increasingly sustainability. So um, sustainability has really only been included in procurement. In the last probably two years, right. So, um, and that's um, it's a pretty important part of it now. sort of, as, as anyone knows, within the procurement area, you know, when you look at making a decision, you're looking at price, you're looking at ability to supply to supply the product, and um, will it function as you want it? And now we're including sustainability in there, and so we evaluate. Um, products when they come to us, and I'll I'll do the evaluation. and I'll feed that into the people making the decisions, and that uh, all goes into the final weighting of uh, of whether we're going to choose that product or not.
1: Does the does the group make any I don't know what the right term is. Political decisions about we, we particularly want to do this because it's going to benefit this thing, even if it might make less less money
2: in the short term? Well, I, I think we've always got an eye to the future. So, um, so we don't sort of make short-term decisions. We're looking to um, international trends with regards to retail. Um, so there's a few examples I could cite there where um, uh, we've put a... Uh, which probably isn't um, always obvious to the public, some of the work we do behind the scenes in our stores, but um, uh, we've put... What we call transcritical refrigeration into a couple of our stores, and that's using um, natural refrigerants. So that offers the opportunity to reduce the actual um, uh, the impact of the emissions leaking from the systems. So it can reduce a carbon footprint um, attributable to refrigeration by 99%, essentially. So, um, but that costs more money to actually mm. do that to start with. Um, however, we've got an eye to the the long term here, and we think that it's a good investment in the business. And so, um, so yeah.
1: Refrigeration in its its own right, an interesting question, isn't it? I mean, that sort of like puts the. It really is a balance of things. You do need to keep stuff cold, but you need Mm. to give people access to it, and they don't want to be cold.
2: That's right. Yeah. So, so that that's good. And and something that's happened in the last couple of years is, as everyone will have seen when they walk into a new world or a pack and save, is lids on freezers. Mm -hmm. And um, and we've probably got that across half of the business at the moment. We're pushing ahead on that to actively encourage um, our grocers out there to, to put their lids on the freezers, huge savings in terms of um, energy efficiency, so you're talking about a 40% reduction in energy efficiency when you put a lid on a on a chest freezer, and um, and whereas 10 years ago there was a perception in the business that um, people wouldn't want to open a freezer up and uh, put their hands inside it and close it again, I think that has now changed, shopping um shopping behaviour has changed and there's a greater recognition amongst the public and our customers, you know, of the reasons why we're doing these things, energy efficiency, global warming, those types of issues. So, um, yeah, so there's there's lots of changes, you know, and our our stores are undoubtedly um, moving, making significant moves within energy efficiency area.
3: So, so, um from what you guys are saying from your institution you sound like you're kind of quite a liberal institution with arts and arts institutions seem to have a lot more flexibility in what we can do conversely we have a very strong corporate mission which is to be the university for the common good and that is the catalyst for many of the things we do because we can relate them back and although we have to stick to, for example, branding in the cafes and that our mugs have to have a certain appeal which might make the reusable mug project not as um, cheap to implement as otherwise but it's still an easy message to link back to the university's vision and values. Yeah. So that's quite useful. Just in terms of the discount for the reusable mug who's wearing that cost? so the the cost was it was designed to be cost neutral and it was the so it's 10 pence and it was at the time um the estimated cost of a cup and lid um yeah right so why doesn't everybody do it?
1: if it's cost neutral and it's a good thing why why do we need your job to make it happen I'm not trying to do you out of a job. No, uh, just, more, well, a more if, philosophical if, question. I, th-
3: I think we get sucked into conv- into convenience, and we get sucked into busy lifestyles that we perhaps have less time to think about the consequences of what we do. But when when you sit and you talk to people, they all have a range of sustainable behaviours that they're very rightly very proud of, and it's about harnessing those and say, well. If you're interested in that, maybe you could be interested in in something else. So I despair when I talk to people about recycling and energy efficiency. But then if you talk about a dream of creating a beastie pond in one of our grounds, their their eyes light up and they're like, when do I sign up? And you're like, geez, oh, now I have to go and build. (laughs) a beastie (laughs) pond but that's you you have to capture whatever motivates people and and for example talking to our caterers they they have the potential and the interest in doing so much that we have to kind of create the right conditions to enable that and so we've just launched a uh, or published a sustainable food policy that's about health provenance uh, environmental impact affordability and we've linked it back into the universities. Mission and and we have great expectations for it.
1: In terms of your procurement, do you require the people you're buying stuff from to also have a a sustainable approach?
3: We have an aspiration that they uh, consider the environmental impacts of what they buy. Um, I think it's a work in progress. There's still more we can do. We subscribe to a, a procurement consortium for Scottish universities called APUC, and and they have uh, product categories and standards that we can buy into, and there um, many are vetted for environmental credentials and things like that, which makes our life easier. Um, I. St- still think there is a role for uh, people purchasing stuff to think more carefully about what it is they're buying, what it is they're replacing and what's going to happen at the end but that's, we're at very early stages of that journey So I guess here's a, an interesting place for us as sustainability professionals
4: with the emphasis a lot of the time coming down to environmental issues yeah, you know, there's a lot of potential for social procurement. Yeah. yeah to be in tension with what we we'll want to do to get the correct environmental product. Um, uh, I guess looking at the the university for the common good, the common good is much much wider than environmental good. Of course. Yeah. So how do you uh, manage those tensions,
3: or are or are they just a perception, and you haven't come across any? I think our procurement function of of the the other functions i um, work with on a regular basis they they're the most engaged in and they have um, perhaps a, a deeper understanding of the sustainability issues and opportunities than than others and they do explore the the social gain so um i don't remember the correct terminology for it but they're they're They look at internships, and they look at... I think it's called community benefit. So they look at opportunities where big contracts can create training opportunities for people. You can have apprenticeships. Um, So so they look at those things, but they're also uh, very constrained, or they give me the impression they're also very constrained by procurement legislation. So there's only certain things that you can do until you cross the line of what you can't do, so they're they're very mindful of that. So we could potentially do more, but we need to be mindful that we're not breaking um, any rules. So The tension
4: might actually be between legislation rather than different types of procurement. Yes, so
3: so it's it's um, you, you can't I, I think you can't distinguish like <clears throat> the distance or justifying uh, how local something is, is is very difficult because you then fall foul of procurement legislation.
1: tried looking for beastie pond but nobody else said it so let's go for convenience here's Jean staniel sephora's okay. last year um and so one of the things that they've done is that they can opt into a shared car ownership oh great okay and i think it's they worked out there was something like 36 cars that were owned by the residents that bought into the scheme and they Sold them all, or didn't replace them, or whatever, and now they've got five or six cars. Oh, okay. And they said that in, I think it was in two years since they've started, that the people I was talking to, have only not been able to get a car like once. Oh, that okay. they thought that they would quite like to have a car. Oh, there's not one available. Okay. Um, and they said that that's from their experience that happened more times when they had their own car oh. that it was at the garage or something that they wished they had a car so it was actually better than they had been before perfect what would be the implications of doing that at scale
5: well and how might we get there the the implications could be uh, tremendous if we were able to scale that model right because you would have fewer vehicles potentially I, I assume that maybe people were talking to neighbours and residents of that complex about where and when they were going to be traveling. So I'm hoping, and I don't know the details, that there would there was more carpooling or joint travel. So that would, the implications could be tremendous. They could mean that we would need uh, a reduced transportation infrastructure. That people would be wasting less time on the roads. If you have less congestion, potentially you could you could have fewer accidents, and you know that accident costs are. Uh, extremely high uh, currently i think in the us about thirty three thousand people die on the roads every year that's down from uh, approximately forty thousand a few years ago not to mention all the accidents so this this represents tremendous social costs right not to mention also the pollution that's related to congestion so this could really be huge for society as a whole and then i assume they i mean i'm hoping that they uh, walk more and so on so hopefully they're healthier as well so maybe that's a silver bullet we were looking for but you know n- maybe maybe that type of uh, living arrangement is not for everyone so
1: you've done quite a lot of work on people's willingness to engage in pro-environmental behavior
5: that's
6: right
1: are people generally good?
5: <laughs> well I can only first of all these are stated uh, stated preferences or uh, you know, statements that people make about their behavior. Um, what I can say, based on my work, and, and we looked, uh, uh, my students and I, at e-waste recycling or recycling in general, for example, is that uh, values or norms are really what's driving people's behavior. So, you know, if you really believe that what... Your, uh, that your actions can make a difference then you're much more likely to engage in recycling or uh, in d- you're more likely to deal with e-waste in a responsible manner so that's basically what we learned from that research we also uh, looked at so for the U.S. as a whole um, based on a, a survey of U.S. households uh, we kind we of compared the, the strengths of economic incentives and norms And it turns out that norms are more important, partly because there is reluctance uh, for various reasons to rely more on economic incentives. So as an economist, of course, I I believe that uh, incentives are a good way to go because uh, they naturally, in some some ways, um, entice people to change their behavior based on their own self-interest. It's much more challenging to change people's views of the world, right? I mean... And, and it's a bit unsettling. We don't, we don't want to convince everybody to do the same thing. But, um, so incentives would be a way to go from an economic point of view. But in the U.S., there is reluctance for recycling on, on the, from manufacturers you know, to, to use deposit refund systems, which have proven effective in other countries.
1: The trouble with incentives, or one of the troubles with incentives, is that for the people that are rich enough, they don't care. I'm not talking about crazy rich enough, but as soon as people are comfortable mm-hmm. then they're prepared to pay for the convenience and yeah they might be paying a little bit extra for the the higher tariff at this time but the convenience of being able to dry your clothes when you want them swamps all that
5: it could it could uh, but you can you can um in a way, I rely on children. You have programs where uh, the children benefit directly. Uh, ch- school children are often a good way to um, bring the environmental message home and to tell people that, in fact, you know, okay, so maybe it's not very much money, but you know, it's going to help schools. And overall, uh, they should feel good because it's going to help the environment and it may affect them indirectly.
1: So if I use my power responsibly my local school benefits yes rather Uh, than
5: oh I was thinking about you know recycling programs where kids actually collect uh, maybe uh, aluminum cans and so on Mm -hmm. and then they bring them back they get the the refund and so that they help they benefit directly
1: and Jean Daniel was talking about making a difference and they're not being silver bullets so let's go for Lisa Ellis talks about silver bullets in fortress ecology
7: creates these, these problems that you've been yeah. Describing. And we shouldn't Kong's expect solving.
0: enlightenment at the top to save us. <laughs> I, mean, I think um, one thing that uh, would help us reframe our environmental problems in a way that is productive is for people to recognize that for the vast majority of environmental problems, the structure of interests is such that there is an overwhelming majority with interest in sustainability and a tiny minority interested in short term extraction. But we haven't framed our. Um, um, environmental politics that way there are certainly exceptions some political parties um some great people around here um have understood this um but in the main um the trend toward framing an environmental politics tends to be human interests versus non-human interests and that's interesting from an ethical perspective, but from a political perspective, it uh, links the majority of people for whom uh, the need for sustainability is enormous, links their interests together with those of the extractors, when in fact they're invidiously related. I mean, there's instance after instance of people for whom uh, the extraction policy was really damaging them, expressing themselves on the side of extractors because they've come to internalize the logic of extraction is being associated with being human. Well, of course people want to be on the side of humanity. In fact, I think it's um, something that all of us professionals in sustainability need to really help us talk about um, how the uh, real structure of interest is being warped by public discourse.
7: And this leads on to another thing that kind of obsesses me philosophically is the idea that somehow we're separate from nature. Mm-hmm. and you know where did that thought process came come from and it seems to have come from out of the enlightenment
0: you can blame you? so many people yeah, I, yeah. <laughs> among the many people we blame for this I want to blame the very beautiful and hardworking environmentalists of the 1970s who uh, Committed to fortress ecology. What a mistake that was! Um, it does. If you say that there are is an invidious relation of conflict between human people and uh, pristine nature, uh, nobody can see my air quotes on the radio, can they? <laughs> <laughs> no, <but laughs> um, and pristine nature with air quotes around it. If you set the conflict up that way, um, you immediately frame environmental activism as an elite effete interest against the interests of the vast majority of working people all over the world and their children. And that's a mistake.
7: And it's really interesting because that kind of came out of the idea of, uh, you know, mechanistic nature. Mm-hmm. That, and, of course, computing was just around then. So, you know, it started around then computing is really interesting. Maybe we can, you know, reproduce, you know, a field, the ecology of a field on the computer. We only just grab enough data. And, Of course, the understand. You know, I think the lesson, and I don't think we learned the lesson. I'm not sure if we we have learned the lesson now. I think, but I don't know if it's is communicated enough through society. Is that uh, nature is simply a chaotic, dynamic, incredibly complex system, Mm -hmm. and you can't you can't reproduce it in a in a mechanistic fashion. No. And I think somehow we haven't quite got. Your society hasn't quite caught up with that
0: idea? No, and I worry that that is a difficult message to get across for basic political argument. I mean, one thing that the climate deniers have on their side is a really simple, easy-to-communicate message that these elite people who are nothing like you want to um, ask you to make sacrifices for no good reason. It's a very simple message. It's wrong, but it's easy to understand. And the... um, as we make our baby steps toward um, an appropriate appreciation of complex reality, which is, as you say, it's chaotic, and there are feedback loops, and even the best modelers have no idea. And they're perfectly modest about um, the uh, probabilistic nature of their predictions. It's very difficult to mobilize a majority in any democracy behind a probabilistic um, uh, slogan, if we all make this effort, perhaps we'll be better off, but we're not sure. Nobody's going to go out and vote on that basis. <laughs> um, so I, I think you're right. Um, and I think you're also right that the message has not gotten through. Otherwise, people wouldn't be, um, hoping for this, uh, what we like to call in my business, Promethean solution to climate change. If you think of a sort of, uh, a much simpler set of contrasts than Sam was talking about at the beginning of this program, um, rather than the uh, eight different ethical options. Uh, one nice cut on them, you could just say you've got Promethean versus precautionary, as the philosopher John Dryzek likes to say. And um, the Prometheans think uh, we can have a silver bullet technological, technological fix for anything that nature throws at us and presumes a divide between humanity and nature. But, of course, um, Prometheanism has repeatedly failed. It's a shame our, our, uh, the time frames really make it difficult for us to perceive these things. Um, for example, if you have access to... Um, family photos of really good fishing expeditions, you might notice that the further back you go in time, the cooler, larger, and more delicious the fish your family caught were. Um, One of my favorite um, slides I've ever seen at an environmental political theory convention was a set of slides showing the prize-winning fish off Key Largo from 1950 to today. And the prize-winning fish are shrinking. Right? Um, but ordinary people, unless they work hard at it, talk to their grandparents, they don't have access to um, tangible information about the real losses they're suffering at the hands of a tiny minority of extractors. And
7: David Suzuki, of course, makes this yeah. very point, is that... <laughs> yes, the, the lack of communication between the generations and lack of storytelling in society mm-hmm. has uh, really kind of hindered our ability to understand what's actually happening. Yes. And
0: part of that whole market dynamic you referenced a few minutes ago.
7: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's really interesting because he said look, the storytelling is, is, is most important important aspect and of course we we talk about like a lot about storytelling on the show because storytelling narrative creating a narrative is is vital for you know changing behavior persuading people to Mm -hmm. um of of, of your story and it seems to be something that's fundamental to sustainability uh that it's it's a repeated theme isn't it sam through people keep talking about how we have to tell a narrative.
1: Yeah, and one of the things that I think that we're not good at telling the narrative of, and I really like this this fish story, um, is that the ethics of intergeneration. You talk about the ethics of the, the non-human, mm. which I want to ask a little bit more about, but we also don't seem to have an ethic of future generation. We do in sort of indigenous storytelling, the seventh generation and all those sorts of things, but we don't seem to have it in our everyday political life. Mm-hmm. There isn't somebody from 50 years hence sitting around the, sitting no. around the Cabinet table.
0: And there have been um, more or less wildly unrealistic proposals, um, which I think are worth considering, um, to represent future generations democratically. Um, it's hard to imagine how you would calculate the discount um, and have present, uh, presently all existing people represented in any numbers in a r- real um, legislature of future generations, but certainly you could have ombudsmen. Um, I think uh, for practical political purposes, um, you don't have to think very many generations forward to get at um, the structure of contemporary environmental conflict as uh, uh majority sustainer, minority extractor, that the future generations problem is an important flaw in our contemporary political culture, that other political cultures have done it much better. But in my view, it's not my first order, it's not on my uh, short list of things we should be working on now, because I think immediately the challenges of adaptation are reaching vast numbers of people in the world. Everyone in the Maldives is deeply concerned (laughs) with the consequences of climate change. Everyone who is um, experiencing volatility in their agricultural production. Everybody who's living in a mangrove swamp. Everybody who's trying to breathe. Everybody who wants regular provision of clean water. And their children. You don't need to go much further than that to recognize that um, the structure of environmental conflict is straight democratic. And we have um, political structures that um, disproportionately represent a tiny minority interest those with interests in extraction of resources in a non-sustainable way over the short term
1: And from Fortress Ecology to Future Generations with Tara Witty.
8: You have uh, systems that involve links and interactions between complex human systems and complex natural systems. So that's precisely what I'm trying to do.
7: So you have, um, you just mentioned it there, you have complex humans and mm-hmm. complex natural systems. And I've always been intrigued with this concept that, you know, humans are a part of nature. So yes. We're not part of nature. And then we've got – so we have this um, idea. I don't know it comes from deep ecology and mm-hmm. and these ideas that somehow we're, we're a part and we're not part of nature. So how do you approach that? What's your picture? Are humans part of nature? Are we not part of nature? What What's the relationship with it?
8: Uh, well, um I guess it all comes down to how you choose to define your words. Um, these days, I even hesitate to say to distinguish between human systems and ecosystems because, um, you know, if you're looking at uh, ideas like ecosystem based management, they explicitly state that humans are part of, na- of ecosystems. And so um, I guess uh, I differentiate between human and natural systems just to, to clarify that those compose what I'm thinking of as ecosystems but um yeah it's a good question and uh i think clarifying those definitions is something that would be helpful yeah.
1: when you're doing work with people in the field in whatever country it is do you make that kind of thinking explicit is, is that kind of thinking things you can engage people with or are you engaging at a different level
8: Oh, well, it it depends on the kind of people with whom I'm interacting. With my field assistants, I give them a very strong background um, just so they know what the overarching goal of the project is or or of the particular field methods are. Um, I do try to make it very clear when I'm applying for research permits just because um, I want to let community leaders know uh, the nature of my work. Um, And I think... In terms of uh, outreach, I've done a lot of outreach with elementary schools and also fishers. And it's uh, not stated in a heavy-handed way. It's just kind of – I think for them, they even feel like it's intuitive. I mean, these are people who make their living off of natural resources. um, And so I don't think – I think it's actually probably uh, more likely that they would view human systems and natural systems as very integrated. Um, The issue, of course, is – how they view natural systems with which they, on which they don't directly depend uh, for their livelihoods, you know, and that's a great issue. Is um These fishermen do not really depend on the dolphins directly for anything, not tourism, not for bait. Um, At my sites, it's just accidental capture. That's the main interaction. So trying to see um, whether the fishermen's values um, for their resources might extend to these dolphins, um, who really don't have any economic value to these fishers, or whether they are viewed as some kind of separate, uh, not related um, aspect of the system is um, part of my interview work.
1: In places where they are competitive for fish, does that happen? I assume it does somewhere.
8: way. Uh, it does. Uh, at my particular sites, um, the fishermen seem to kind of laugh it off. I mean the, the dolphin populations that I'm studying are, are quite small. Uh, most of them are fewer than 100. And so uh, I, they really don't occur in a, in a density that I think fishers would uh, interpret as competing. I do have uh, some fishers complain that their gear gets damaged when the fish ste- or when the dolphins steal shrimp and fish from their nets. And some of them do complain that the dolphins, if they're around the fishing boat, will sometimes scare the fish away. Um, at my site in Thailand, um, that's where I saw the closest interaction between fishers and dolphins. Uh, some of the fishermen will actually. Um, feed the dolphins their discards and they they seem to actually enjoy watching the dolphins swim around and play
1: humans ecosystems integrated systems and dolphins so let's go for something else with a fin let's go with finn Boiled. he also talks about things being dolphin friendly
9: um and full of uh pesticides and herbicides which can can cause problems as well and so uh, talking with some people working in those kind of facilities, something we realised is that the having it, having those those processes at a sort of more human scale that people can actually kind of understand and engage with a bit more easily means that they have a far greater buy-in and the success of it. And so, are going to take more care in how they um, you know how they interact with it, even if it is still just sort of filling a bin and putting it out on the street. There might be a bit more in, um Cognitive engagement with that, oh actually I need to make sure that I can do my bit here.
1: When we first started the Living Campus on at the Polytech 10-12 years ago, one of the red lines that we weren't allowed to cross was there was to be no compost bins on campus.
9: Aye. Yes. And it was
1: it was it was it was the only thing that people objected to. Mm. Other than people perceived that the productive gardens would be less tidy than the <laughs> trimmed roses. But once we got past that, the the bottom line that we couldn't cross was the compost. And so we didn't have any compost bins on campus, despite the fact the whole point of it was to bring sustainability to front of house. We wanted to sort of turn it inside out and make those sorts of of systems visible. Mm. But people said, no, we're not having something so dirty, something so smelly. It's certainly not going anywhere near my building. It's not, you know, you can't have it anywhere. And after two or three years of putting up with this, um, the... Then head of campus services, was it Rod Markham or, or Simon Noble? Forgotten which one it was. Said, "We're just going to do it," <laughs> and he put a compost bin directly under his office window. Nice. So there was no one else could complain. It was you know, he was demonstrating that that's you know, how we can and do that. But I think that where you're coming from is continuing that that mm. journey of how do we, you know, put this thing. Front and center. It's not about hiding this sort of stuff. Yeah, it's actually about learning from it, which is, we are, after all, a learning organisation. When I last saw you, I took you up to Christchurch because I was going to Christchurch.
9: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Matt.
1: And you were going to Christchurch with a huge pile of food. <laughs> <laughs> Where
9: were you going? Uh, I was en route to um, Oroua or also known as Blue Mine Island, which is a little. Uh, Little island right at the top of Queen Charlotte Sound in Marlborough. Or Queen Charlotte Sound in Marlborough. Um, yeah, I was going to spend a week on that little island. Uh, living in tents and got a big old gas cooker with a group of about 30. Mostly made up of secondary school students from around, uh, around the South Island. Uh, going to be utterly immersed in a um conservation project to explore uh the main themes of sustainability and leadership around sustainability um with the this this is a program that runs um with the help of the untouched world charitable trust funded by the untouched world um clothing brand yeah, going to spend a week on this little island and just dive like deep into what is sustainability and what the hell are we going to do about the, the crises that we face. It's a super powerful program. Really, really uh, transformative for a lot of the people who get to to, um, to go on those.
1: And Finn there talking about the Living Campus. Another Living Campus is on Napier University. Here's Cal Egan, in Edinburgh.
4: That's always been there around computing. I, don't, I, don't I think, think that another thing that is thing, thinking off the top of my head, head.
1: There's another thing about the, the reality of the garden. Yeah. The reality of the messiness of the garden. The yes, reality, yeah. and in fact, the messiness yeah. is probably healthier. Yeah. Um, and we're we too keen to go for sort of homogenous. Yeah. Bringing everything
4: down to just this system. Sure. Agreed, but, you know, absolutely We agree. need that. Yeah, I love I love the messiness of it. I think uh, mess is a great area. It's an area I want to get more into, you know, just the messiness of, of it all, the reality of it. I mean, uh, you know, you, you've had kids as well, you know, uh, and uh, it's a messy world, you know. This computer's covered in sick. Yeah. <laughs> There's a nappy, a dirty nappy lying next to it, maybe, you know what I mean? And and, and everything's all a spaghetti of leads, right? Uh that's the way it is, you know. And you know, the the marketing of it is so ridiculous in, in, in many ways. You know, the, the, the machines have become—they're still just computer. I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just find it all quite confusing. What, what they're, yeah, I don't, I don't believe. That is going to solve all all of our problems at all. To me, they're just tool, another tool, and they have to become like a tool in a in the toolkit. If this is the use, if this is the tool that I need in order to do what I do, then that's the one I'll do. But it might just be a hammer, or it might be a, you know, a sewing kit, or something. I don't, I don't I, you know I mean. So, what are your plans for the garden? Well, the plans are uh, to get the university to really. Um, to really back it, and there seems to be a lot of positive uh, uh, work in that area at the moment. You know, there's, there's a vibe going on in the university around climate change and everything as well. Actually, when I've been here, there's been a big meeting i see that they've had. So we want to... The plans are to get the infrastructure done to such an extent that it's a self-sustaining system. It's, we're not far away from that, you know. We um, need to get the water features in and a little bit more planting, and then they, they're already taking care of themselves to some extent. <laughs> yeah, so the circular food thing is a big one. So that has been a nice one, and it's kind of going already, and that's happened just very in a grassroots manner. Uh, the, the, the kitchens love the garden, and they use the space. I didn't expect that at all. they just kind of, all the catering staff are like, like we've got a garden, and it's so cool, you know what I mean? They love it, and they're so nice to me about it, and they get all the food, and I'm always like... Just take what you want when you when you want it, and you know it's created a really positive thing. But then we obviously, what going forward, that just making that whole thing work. Are we going to use some kind of uh, ordering system and you know, all that kind of stuff? There's lots of great little work, all student projects. I would, I would give students little nudges and say, "Look, we've got this element of the garden." You know, you're, you're, and we've got, you know, students that really are, are into the whole pond uh, environment, the ecosystem of ponds and stuff like that and the health of them in an urban setting. Right? You know, there's another project there and then, you know, we've got a stage, we're going to do performance, It's going to be a fringe venue, uh, we've got this chair the interactive throne uh, which is going to be computationalized and kind of have a personality and it's going to go searching for articles about sustainability and it's going to go searching for people to tours to invite to sit in the chair and tell stories in the chair, in the garden of a sustainability or nature-based kind of theme, you know. So we're just trying to bring people into the spaces as much as we possibly can. We've got food forests. We've got a medicinal herb garden going on. We've got tea gardens going in uh, sensory gardens. We've got an. Ex- we want to make it accessible for. Uh, Um, wheelchairs and and all this kind of stuff as well. We've got that whole element of it too. And so lots of events will go on in the spaces, I think. We've already had a couple already that have gone dead well. We've got an outdoor pizza oven, somebody else bought it. So we just have that, come in, yeah, sit in the garden and we'll pick All the stuff, and then all you know what I mean. It's a kind of you can't, you know. What we're going to make a Napier jam, you know, a, a Napier chutney. We've got juniper bushes. We're going to make a <laughs> Napier gin, you know. What I mean, it's really where you want to go with it, you know. And, and, and really, of course, in my mind, I want them, the universities to buy this big this facility that's for sale down in the borders on the banks of the Tweed and, and become the, a world centre for sustainability. And that's what I would like them to do. But you know, whether we ever get there, we'll have to see. You know you would really have to grab the, the nettle.
1: So we tried to do a show on shopping it didn't work because as usual the rabbit hole was quite large and quite inviting started with consumption and ending i suppose with a pond in scotland in the garden in the university you can hear the rest of the conversations with each of these people on sustainablelens.org look for mike Salmon's, paulo cruz Jean Daniels-Fores, Lisa Ellis, Tara Whitty, Finn Boyle, and Cal Egan. That was Sustainable Lens, I'm Samuel Mann, diving into the archive, we hope you enjoyed the show.
9: At Otago Polytechnic, we've made a commitment to sustainability in all that we do. High quality, hands-on education is our trademark, and it's delivered with a focus on sustainable practice. We even have a school dedicated to it, our Centre for Sustainable Practice. For more information, check out our website, otago A bright future is a sustainable future. Otago Polytechnic, proud sponsor of Sustainable Lens.
3: This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin, with support
0: from New Zealand On the Air.